do you want to count down or are we not doing that anymore we're not doing that anymore oh, sorry that's so 2016 <laughs> everything so 2016 <laughs> that's bad i know 2017 <sighs> is so 2016 well no one's died yet that's, <sighs> no one's been elected no one famous <laughs> that's true people have died, died. come on come on <laughs> Jeez, what am i thinking i forgot about all those people that have died <laughs> oh that's terrible um i i have a couple of herniated discs in my back so that's fun 2017 Wait, seriously yeah i, I, I know about after the wreck I, I found out yesterday went to the, so I've, you know i've been in physical therapy or whatever for the last six weeks and then um went to the doctor yesterday and <laughs> like you have you have a uh, two two herniated disc and you know you're gonna have to be careful because you have micro fractures which might require surgery and now you have two herniated discs in where in are they parts your in your back l2 and c2 so top and bottom yeah wow so you yeah. know that's <laughs> so i had i had back surgery a few years ago uh oh, that's right i forgot about for that, that reason yeah. so mine was like was like L5 S1 like down at the very bottom. Yep. And um but the problem was it had herniated and it was pinching the nerve. And so I was losing feeling in my leg. Um and then when they get the MRI, they were like, "Oh, this is one of the worst I've ever seen." So <laughs> on a Tuesday and the surgeon was like, uh, "I had an opening on Thursday. Can you do the surgery on Thursday?" And I was like, "Sure." Uh and but it fixed it right away. But I mean, you know, everybody's issues a little bit different, but that's, that's crazy. Most people I know with herniated discs are able, they're completely fine. Um, you know, through exercises and things like that, they're fine. And I've also heard that a lot of people have them and never know because just the disc itself herniating is not necessarily a problem. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, it, you know, I've been in pain, but it's not nothing. It's not like a new pain, you know, right. cause I mean, the whole back hurts like random times or whatever. Um, so I was like, man, whatever. And and then, yeah, they were, <laughs> yeah. They, they did the x-rays and stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm going back for MRIs, I believe, next yeah, week. And that's, that's what you really need to see what's going on with that kind of stuff. But, I mean, as far as I understand, uh, like once you start getting back pain, it just doesn't get any better. So um, That's I'm what my doctor said to you. you know, I'm, I'm four and a half <laughs> years in on it now, like since my surgery. And, no, I mean – some days it's great and some days it's not great at all. Um, it's weird, yeah. And sitting mean, is bad. And of course, my main job now, I have to sit for like eight hours a day. So you don't have like a standing desk or anything? No, I mean, I've really, I've thought about it, but you know, the furniture was already in there when I got in this new office. Um, yeah. So I stand up a lot and Apple Watch does remind me to do that every hour, but that's like for a minute every hour and that's helping some, but it's not, it's not as good. So yeah, you have to keep us. Or at least keep me posted on that. I guess it was, right? You now told yeah. our whole audience. So now you have I know. To I know. Now everyone knows. That, that keep them posted on that. But yeah, hopefully the physical therapy will. Well, you know, I know a lot of people have had that issue and are able to uh, solve. A lot of times they will like kind of reabsorb. Yeah. Uh, and go right. back in, which is most common, I think. But mine was just bad enough. It was, yeah, it was not going to. So that's, uh, yeah, that's not fun. I know, I know. I forgot. I forgot. That's what your what your surgery was for. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I you know I hadn't noticed it. Like I said, I mean it's been painful, but you know that's been the last <laughs> couple of months after the wreck. So I haven't really thought about like, oh, maybe I have a that going on. Anyway, so that's fun. But um, you know, we're getting old. Um, yeah. <laughs> how's how's your week been? Anything? 
exciting happen? Oh, where to start? Um, so, yeah, so we got to hear Obama's farewell address. You're such a nerd. <laughs> what else am I going to talk about? <laughs> I'm going to talk about work on here. Come on. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So I, I will say Obama's address was, I, I thought, pretty interesting. I, I didn't realize it was going to be kind of like a, like a pep rally feel to it, you know? Well, but almost, but then I don't know. This is, I've, I, there's been kind of two, two takes, right? Two main takes that I've seen on this. One is it was really hopeful and maybe too hopeful. And then the other that I think is a little bit more accurate is he is literally telling you, Hey, America, wake up. Democracy is under threat. I mean, his whole speech was he had five reasons why democracy is under threat. I mean, that was the whole framing of his speech. So so on the one hand, yeah, it was kind of pep rallyist, large crowd back in Chicago. Um, and he did say, here are the great things we've done. And he was kind of hopeful. And of course, he ended with, yes, we can, like you and I were really hoping he would, kind of expecting him to. Um, but if you listen to what he actually said, right, his framing was, I, I think, very, it was kind of a big deal, right? Because because he is, as people liked it, Gloria Borger says this all the time, right? He's no drama Obama. And so, of course, immediately afterward, on uh, he finished his farewell speech. He said, well, there we got drama Obama. Okay, that's great. But but he is really even killed, right? Just pretty much a centrist. And, and he really believes in the peaceful transition of power and in upholding these norms um, to the chagrin of many in his party. Yeah. And so for that person... To give that speech saying, here are the five ways democracy is under threat, I think should alarm a lot of people. Well, it's like when, evidently, when he received the briefing on um, the Trump dossier, the dossier yeah. he said, what the hell does this have to do with anything? <laughs> which, yeah. which I find, like, strangely puzzling because, you know, right. I mean, I read it and I was like, oh, my gosh. Right. Um, <laughs> so for, for the city president to read it and say, what does this have to do with anything? kind of flippantly um like wow and meanwhile biden said he read it you know like it was war and peace or something you know like it was this <laughs> right involved novel um yeah and the, the whole thing with with biden today by the way like that was that was pretty interesting with uh him getting the the medal of freedom medal of freedom yeah yes um, pretty touching yeah definitely definitely uh, and appropriate i think i mean yeah he is I don't know. He's a bit of a relic, right? Not in the bad way, but in the, you know, and, and there are young people like this too, by all means. But, um, you know, Biden is the person who, <laughs> sorry, Biden, uh, Biden is the person who, you know, truly believed like, <laughs> that's racist. You serve your country. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, you serve your, like, you know, public services is, is a calling and you give your life to it. And, then, yeah, I think he believes that. And yeah, yeah, he was like the 60s, his... 70s, like Democrat, Republican who, you know, right. despite my politics, I'm a lifelong, you know, I, I believe in the system and I'm going to work for the for the system. Right, exactly. And and I appreciate that because that's that's a lot of, you know, where I come in on a lot of things that I guess pushes, it you know, makes me seem a lot maybe more centrist than I am. Um you know, and, you know, talking about the politics of what's possible and all, which we've discussed, you know, a hundred times before. But, um, you know, I just really appreciate someone who believes in the system and says, I'm going to be part of the system and do what I can to make the system work for other people. And I, I think when the system works well, it really helps people. Um, and that's kind of classic democratic, you know, um, views of government, classic liberalism. 
Uh, and that's something that resonates with me, but, um, yeah, I, I thought that was really touching today and, and fitting. So, do you, I mean, you, you feel like Obama was trying to send a, uh, send a signal or yeah. a dog whistle, if you will, to yeah. people on the left or, or just people who were listening? Um, I guess people who were listening, right? But the speech was directed at people on the left, right? It was about getting up, uh, you know, you know, um, uh, tying your laces, grabbing your clipboard and running for office. Right. Uh, it was, it was to spur, uh, people to action. And mostly I think to spur people on the left to action. Um, but I, I don't even know if we can call it a dog whistle. I mean, he literally said he, he, he literally called out authoritarianism and nativism. And he talked about the threats to democracy. I don't, it just didn't, it doesn't seem that kind of coy to me. It didn't seem like exactly. he was really beating around the bush. He didn't say, sure, he didn't say at you know a hundred different times, Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. But every <laughs> right, you know what he's saying, right? Somebody quoted, you know, or commented on a thing I posted earlier and said, and I don't remember who it is right now, but um, you know, you don't need you don't need to tweet when your whole like farewell speech is a subtweet of somebody, and that and that's kind of what it was. But it wasn't even that. Um, that uh you know oblique i don't think so it, it wasn't like donald trump who tweeted this morning that um we should all go support ll bean because they're a great company who supports him and we should all go by and then his next tweet is cnn is in a total meltdown with their fake news because right. their ratings are tanking since the election and the credibility will soon be gone exclamation point so those aren't subtweets those are direct tweets you would say right exactly because he's calling them out <laughs> Yeah, subtweet is kind of a What's fancy. What's the definition of fascism again? Like when it, when it, when the government supports companies and tells you to buy from IBM. Well, actually, I mean, so if he had sent that tweet, as, yeah, if he'd sent that tweet as president, like after the twentieth, um, he would be violating uh, White House ethics rules. Not that that matters. He's just going to change them, right? Um. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, so yeah, I mean, a lot of people right are talking about the contrast between. Uh, obviously between Obama and Trump, but particularly between Obama's farewell address and then this, I don't know, uh, Gaddafi-esque press conference that we had, right? I mean, that, that's what it was. And that's what I, I went back to. And, and of course, I posted this and I don't know that people remember it, but I wrote, you know, back in July and talking about the part of the reason I think Donald Trump is so dangerous is because we've never seen anybody like him before, right? So we can't just say, oh, he's like Hitler because he's not. Um, and I think he has the traits of a lot of different people, but but the traits I think he has most strongly uh, that seem to be paralleled uh, with other authoritarian rulers is with Muammar Gaddafi. And this just kind of bombast, right, this egocentrism, this love for ostentatiousness and you know, you see, and the kind of rambling, the crazy press conferences. I mean, he still hasn't gotten to like the two hour, you know, rambling, crazy, insane speech that Gaddafi gave at the U.N., but um, – <clears throat> You know, it's kind of it's that right, um, which is really different from the president that we currently have for another week. Are you there? Yeah. Oh, you dropped out a little bit. Oh. I'll make a note. Um. Okay, so people would say the same thing about. I mean, not about Obama, but maybe Bill Clinton or. Not Gaddafi-esque, but 
you know, they would say they were tyrants who definitely overstepped the boundaries of, of the office of the presidency. And, um, you know, Obama passed all these executive actions and, and, you know, really pushed kind of the, the role of the presidency into new areas where perhaps he was overstepping the boundaries of the executive office, especially after George W. Bush and after Obama kind of ran against that, right? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, and that that may end up being um, what well, probably will end up being part of Obama's legacy is that he he did expand the the power of the office of the presidency um, in a way that may prove to be rather disastrous under his predecessor. Um, and I, I don't think there's any way around that. I mean, I, I think that's I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I do think that they are of a different kind. Uh, the expansions of power that you have seen with other people and with Obama um, than what we're seeing from Donald Trump. Um, so, so can we give a final thanks, Obama, to that hashtag? Yeah, uh, I gave one at the you know <laughs> after the farewell. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. Um, okay, so. Um, Taking that, taking that idea of Obama expanding the, the executive office and the use of executive orders over the last eight years to get things done. Because, I mean, he said at one point, right, like in 2012 or 2013, like, uh, I wasn't elected with a mandate, but I do feel that it's okay for me to use executive orders to get things done because of the Republican Congress. Right, the intransigence of the Congress. Right, Exactly. So do you think the Democrats are going to stonewall Trump? And do you think that Trump is going to turn around and, and kind of play the same card against them with executive orders? Um, no, I don't think Democrats are going to stonewall Trump. So I don't think he'll have to. One, he has a Republican Congress like Obama did when he first came in. And so he can pass pretty much whatever he wants. And they have shown themselves to be very willing, right? I mean, Paul Ryan said today they're completely in sync on their steps to repeal Obamacare and then maybe possibly essentially simultaneously, but maybe the same day, maybe a couple hours later, maybe the same week, pass a replacement. It, 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 it. Um, um, yeah, so, but, but, so, okay, in, in, so, but here's, here's, here's why I don't think Democrats will stonewall Trump um, because they're already showing cracks in the armor, right? You already have, all right. So what happened on the day that, I mean, this is infamous by now, right? On the day that Obama was inaugurated, what happened? There was a secret meeting in Washington among, among some higher up Republicans. And they said, we are going to oppose everything he does, right? There's nothing like that among Democrats and not me. You know, I'm not saying well, I have any inside information, but I'm saying what we can see in publicly available information is you have high ranking Democrats across the country uh, saying, well, you know, if you know, we can work with them on infrastructure and if there are good things, we can work with them on those. Um, and that says to me they have there are a few, but it is only a handful of Democrats who are saying we need to oppose them at every turn. Uh, now, there are questions about whether that is the right thing to do. Obviously, Democrats did not think that was the right thing to do when Republicans did it. But as an electoral strategy, it worked out fairly well for Republicans. They don't they didn't do anything and they were clear about we're not going to let him have any successes and, you know, to the best of their power. And then everybody hates Congress because nothing happens and they run on isn't Congress horrible. You should put us in there. 
right? So as an electoral strategy, it was not that bad. Um, but Democrats, by and large, seem to uh, think, well, we're going to, you know, there's still norms that we think we should abide by. So, yeah, if he has decent legislation, we can work with him on that. Um, and it's just, I don't know. I mean, the idea is we're doing the greater good, right? The greater good is we're going to work with them on positive legislation, et cetera. Um, and we're not going to stonewall them. The reality is, um, it's maybe not a great electoral strategy. And at the end of the day, it's probably not a great policy or political strategy either. You know, I was really surprised by uh, how the Democrats handled the uh, nomination process. Because, you know, at first we had reports that the Democrats were going to stonewall some of the nominees like Rex Tillerson and right. um, uh, what's it, Jeff Sessions for attorney general. And some did. Like Corey, uh, hey Corey Booker, uh, he didn't testify against Jeff Sessions in, in his hearing, right? Right, and you know, I, I thought I thought more and more Democrats were going to do that, especially when they dug up uh, the the memo that Mitch McConnell had sent over to the right. Democrats in two thousand nine, right. saying, "No, no, you can't fast track," and each of these appointees has to go through very stringent uh, background checks. And now the Republicans are saying, well, we don't need background checks, especially Mitch McConnell. Um, well, they did get them to delay uh, the hearings of like Betsy DeVos and some others. Yeah, that I think that's that's going to be bloody, the education. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jeb Bush came out in support of her. Did he? Yeah. I think she used to work for him or something like that. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, but they are close. And he came out in support of her early this week or late last week. So how do you think it's going in, in the first – I mean, because, you know, effectively, like, Obama is, is doing his farewell tour and Trump is right. beginning his administration. How, how do you think things are going so far in, in terms of um, any surprises or, or you know, are, are you um, are you pleased with how, <laughs> how the transition is happening? Or, or do you think there's some background tension that we, we just haven't seen, like the 35-page dossier? Yeah. So I think there, well, some of us have seen that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of background tension that's not being talked about very publicly. Uh, as far as the, the actual like technical transition of power, um, some of that is, I guess, going, uh, but I'm also hearing that some of that is like, it's going fine because there's not a whole lot going on uh, in certain places. And then we see some rather um, abnormal and, you know, frankly, kind of scary things where, you know, basically uh, Trump has said, on inauguration day, all of Obama's ambassadors have to resign. Now, yes, there are other career service people that will uh, still be in these foreign offices, but it it doesn't seem very smart to have your all of your ambassadors around the world uh, leave at the same time, right? Um, so I, I'm not surprised by much of what's going on um, because a lot of what I see just reinforces for me that Donald Trump does not have a clue what he's doing. He just doesn't know, right? And then he's appointing people, for the most part, that also don't know. Like Jeff Sessions knows the system. I don't think he should be attorney general. He's going to get um, he's going to get approved. I know that. Uh, but like Rex Tillerson, right? He, I mean, he admitted that he hadn't talked to Trump about Russia. I mean, all these other – like he doesn't know what he's doing either. He led a oil company for a long time. Um, but I think you're seeing with a lot of these things, Donald Trump like and, – and we knew this, right? And this is what – People tried to say, Hillary Clinton tried to say it, he is dangerously unfit for this office. Um, he doesn't know what he's doing, and his team, from a lot of things I've seen, also don't know what they're doing. 
and that's one of the, you know, everybody talks about wanting outsiders, but then you bring these outsiders in and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to put a staff together, right? They don't know how to, I mean, there are thousands of people that he has to hire before Inauguration Day. They won't all get done before then, and that's not uncommon. But they seem to have gotten a slow start on it, and now it's picking up steam, and it's going maybe about pace. But um, I think there are a lot of things that are happening, particularly with uh, the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare repeal and replace. Um, I mean, he's had 15 different positions on that, right? And the last week, he's had three different positions on that. Uh, which is par for the course for him. This is exactly how he was during the campaign. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, he's going to pivot. We knew there wasn't going to be a pivot. Um, he's not going to change, right? Think about all the other 70-year-olds you know. Are they going to change? They're not going to change, right? Particularly particularly not something this drastic. And, you know, that's this much a part of who they are and their public persona. So I'm not really surprised by that. I am disappointed with a number of the picks um, that he's chosen for his cabinet. But I mean, that's what's going to happen. And they're probably all, and Tillerson may be the exception. Most of them, I think, will will um, be affirmed. Uh, Tillerson, though, may have actually bombed his hearing. Um, he seemed to uh, be very um, unprepared, unknowledgeable, and may have actually perjured himself, too. So uh, oh, really? Tillerson may that? actually get, he may get, you know, swift-booted. <laughs> what, do, um, what do you mean, perjured himself? So he said that he had never lobbied uh, Congress uh, on behalf of Exxon and right, the Congress, um, and was like, I'm pretty sure you called me during that time. Um, so, yeah, so he, he may have uh, – he did not perform well at all, and that seems to be the view across the board. So Tillerson may get the boot. We'll see. But other than that, really? I mean – You think so? He might. I mean, we'll, we'll time will tell, but, uh, it, I mean, nobody was happy with, with his performance, I don't think. Oh. I, I hadn't seen any uh, – I haven't sat down to watch the, the reporting yet on that. So. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so as far as that goes, um, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe there's some positives and, you know, some of them saying, no, we're not going to have a Muslim ban. Um, but I don't know. I mean, Trump is – I was thinking about this last night, right? Um, it's It's weird listening to someone when you simultaneously don't believe anything they say and believe that everything they say is possible. You know? Well, I mean, uh, what do you mean? So, I don't... Uh, un- unpack that, to quote Jim McConnell. Right. Um, so, the thing is, like, Donald Trump is a serial liar, right? He's a pathological liar. I, I fully believe this. Uh, and and I, I, I have known pathological liars personally in my life. Um, and they often, they lie enough that they begin to believe their own lies. And yeah, I believe that's every, I mean, basically everyone in Washington. I mean, some people are there for good reasons, but. No, I don't. But see, I mean, that's the thing is I don't think that everyone is fundamentally corrupt. I don't think the system is fundamentally broken. So I, I just don't subscribe to that worldview. I know most people do. I know Congress's approval rating is like 8 or 11% or something like that. Um, I don't think everybody in Washington is there. I think that politicians spin. And oftentimes we are more drawn to certain pieces of information than others, right? It's this kind of um, you know reinforcing bias that we have. I understand how that works for a lot of people. Donald Trump is is of a different kind from that. Speaking of um, lying, it just is breaking now that James Comey was the one who personally briefed Trump on the uh, synopsis about the dossier. 
nice. even though yeah i just sent you the direct tweet so it's cnn and the hill and all these AB, abc news politics is all breaking this um yeah and kellyanne conway said you know they hadn't been briefed and he was not briefed on those two pages and trump said he wasn't briefed and now it's coming out that it was the director of the fbi that briefed trump on that personally yeah, which just adds more questions, right? And they announced an investigation today, an independent investigation from the DOJ into Comey's handling of the Hillary Clinton thing uh, right before uh, in October, November, right before the, um, it's the just, election. It's weird. It's weird. And, you know, this is I'm not being political. Like if this is Democrats, I, w- I would be just as it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, it's outraged. to a point where where you really begin to think like like we can't make this up. Yeah. Like, are we crazy? Like, is this uh, an episode of? Westworld or or Man in the High Castle or you know uh, yeah. what you call it with, with uh, House of Kevin Cards Spacey. meets House Black Cards. Mirror or something like that right that's what I saw somebody else say um, right because you right he found out the other day like the lawyer at his uh, press conference who was saying oh you know he can't have conflicts of interest and here's how he's going to handle his business dealings uh, by the way uh, her law firm was named like law firm of the year in Russia in Russia <laughs> like it's like seriously like pick another firm like when you know that the questions are like hey you're too close to Russia right so you just cannot make all this up I mean it is it is kind of crazy um but no what I was saying with with Trump is that so because he is this pathological liar I don't believe anything he says, right? Oh, we're going to build a wall. I don't believe for a second a wall is going to get built. Mexico is going to pay for it. That sure as hell not going to happen. Mexico is not, I mean, you know, just follow Vicente Fox on Twitter, um, the former president of Mexico. He's not making all the decisions now. He's a funny follow, but he is very, very clear. Mexico is not paying for the wall. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, what's he going to do? Is he going to extort them? No. And so now he's coming out. Well, it might not be a direct payment. We want to go to get started into the wall. So it might be taxes and stuff like that. Well, OK, I just I just don't believe that's going to happen. Um, but then at the same time, you also think, OK, he's just full of it. Right. He's just completely full of it. Everything he says. Uh But then also some of these things are going to happen and some of these things are going to cost people their lives. They're going to break up families. Uh, They are going to cost us our standing in the world. They are going to make our uh, our lives more dangerous. Right. Um, And so then you believe, well, he might actually get to push a wall through. He might actually push, you know, a Muslim registry through an expansion of previous databases that we've already had and used for those purposes and then some and, you know, slightly more nefarious purposes. Right. He may actually get to push some of those things through. Um, You know, he he's talked about wanting nationwide stop and frisk. Uh, So so it's this weird position of kind of simultaneously believing, you know, not believing anything he says, but also believing that what he says could actually happen. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense or anyone else feeling the same thing, but but that's kind of um, where I found myself thinking about a lot of this last night. Well, I mean, I, I really got involved in politics when I was a kid and I forgot. I was like 10 years old, 11 years old. No, I was. What was that? 1988 with uh, Dukakis and, and George Bush. So, yeah, I was like nine years old. And I really sort of fell in love with the kind of the concept of presidential elections for some reason. So our school had like a mock election and I was Dukakis and one of my good friends actually 
played the role of Bush and we had to learn all this stuff, know this policy thing. We had a team and, you know, this is pretty cool for like a little small rural South Carolina uh, educational system. Yeah. And uh, we had a couple of debates and then the, the whole school voted and, and the caucus won over, or I won overwhelmingly and I was appointed uh, as, as president for life. Um, <laughs> as you are. <laughs> His excellency, Sam Trump. Um, and then in, in 1992, like I, I really got into politics because, you know, I was like leaving middle school, going to high school and I, I bought all of Ross Perot's books and I thought like, you know, this is really, really interesting and I'm, I'm, I'm totally going to subscribe to this. And then I think it was Primary Colors. Do you remember that book that was written by an anonymous person? Um, turned out to be one of the speech writers, I believe, for Bill Clinton. Okay. But it's kind of like a, it was a novelized version of, of the 1992 campaign trail, like following Bill Clinton. And this was at the height of the whole um, uh, Jennifer Flowers, Paula Jones, you know, way before Lewinsky stuff. And James Carville was at his height. And we all thought like, eh, you know, we, we, we can't really trust Bill Clinton, but you know what? He's a good fella, you know. We're, we're gonna we're gonna make him president, and and still I love Bill Clinton. Um, but the that book was one of the first books that I went out and bought with my own money, you know, like eighth ninth yeah. grade, and I really like poured myself into it and loved it. And it was kind of like the the eye opening book for me in terms of wait, it, this is not what it seems, <laughs> you know. And there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Um, that gets hidden and doesn't make, you know, isn't made public for, for good reason. Right. Um, yeah, you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Just enjoy right. your hot dog. And from that time on, like not, I've not been cynical about politics because I've been involved in politics and I love politics and I, I still, you know, I mean, the, gosh, this show is a political show basically. <laughs> basically. Politics. Um, you know, and it's always been wrapped up in my personal religion and my personal faith. Um, but yeah, so I mean, ever since then, I've had that feeling, you know, so when we talk about Donald Trump as a as an abject liar or as a, you know, total dishonest fraud, whatever, it's like, yes, but so is Bernie Sanders and so is Elizabeth Warren and so is Bob Dole and Bill Clinton and George Bush, you know, like everyone sells their soul in order to get elected. Like that's part of the game. But at what point do you say, I'm not going to do that and I'm going to stand for what I believe in and you become someone like Joe Biden who... I think now towards the end of his career saying, you know what, I'm Joe Biden. And if you don't like me, then sorry, but here's what I want to do. And it's, I, I wish we had more of those types of politicians in place because I think that's what the founders were going for. And as racist and, and, you know, men of their times as they were white men privileged with power and land and all that stuff, as much as they were of that level, I think they were trying to get for those people that were trying to, ensure that the future of our country would be led by those people that really cared about that rather than the people that cared about power or the people that cared about making money through office. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that, that to me, that's the real disconnect in our Republic in, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how we elect people now and how we think about politicians and yeah, the whole like fake news BS and, you know, all, all these, uh, I guess, you know, memes and, and concepts that we throw out there. I'm not saying, you know, there's no such thing as fake news. Of course there is. But when you look at someone like Joe Biden or when you look at someone 
Um, I'm trying to think on the Republican side, you know, like, like a Bob Dole even, um, you know, these are men who, and women, but you know, these are people that, that gave their life for public service and they're not there to enrich their own coffers and they're not there, um, to get more power necessarily. And yes, they've made compromises and that we probably don't want to know their, their skeletons in the closet any more than we want to know that. Thomas Jefferson was raping slaves or that George Bush was not chopping on cherry cherries or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, but for me, the best we can do is elect people that regardless of their political views, you know, people that really care about the Republic, whether that's Paul Ryan or whether that's Cory Booker. And I think the, the sooner we come to that realization and the sooner that we get away from the cult of the personality, like the better we'll be as a country. But I don't know. I, I think post, you know, people want to blame the internet and Facebook and BuzzFeed and those things. It all goes back to, to radio even, you know, but, but definitely TV, you know, and it's, it was that first election with Kennedy and, and Nixon standing there and, and Nixon was sweating. Nixon was eminently more qualified. He was a better candidate. Like if, if it hadn't been for those televised debates, he probably would have won the election Right. and not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not a big Nixon fan, but I, nece- I wasn't necessarily a Kennedy fan either. Um, and I think people like LBJ, who really cared about the Republic, but who would never get elected now, um, are people that like can't get elected. You know, and those aren't people that are running for office anymore. It's people who, you know, have the means to do that. Um, right. Yeah, there so, are a lot know, of barriers. For office to itself that. is a privilege. Yeah, so right, anyway, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that that's the end of my tirade. But yeah, no, and I will say, I mean, even with, um, you know, even with your example of Bob Dole, right? Um, of course, it came out recently that his lobbying firm was had lobbied the Trump campaign for months before the Taiwan call that overturned four decades of. Um, you know, U.S. protocol toward China and Taiwan. And oh, by the way, he lobbies for um, the country of Taiwan and, you know, gets paid, his company gets paid $25,000 a month, et cetera. Um, so, you know, he's not clean either. Um, but I still, so yes, I, I don't know that I would say they've all sold their shoulder to the devil, um, you know, or anything like that. You got to make deals. You got to make the sausage. There's a game to play. That's fine. Um, I just I don't think everyone is you know compromised or has compromised their values because they may decide to vote a different way on a certain thing or something like that. Uh, I really do believe that Trump is of a different kind um, than uh, most of the other politicians that we've uh, had before. Um, but then you know this question is what do you do? Uh, I think we talked about this last time. You got to start on the local level, right? You got to affect change there. Um, and politicians are increasingly uh, more well liked the, the as you move from the national to the state to the local level, right? You know the people, you know your city commissioners and you know councilmen and women and things like that. Um, so you got to start at the local level, I think. But you know, there's also the question of you know that we've you know talked we've talked about some we haven't talked about I don't think on here and not a lot of people are talking about. Uh, broadly, but you know who, who is going to be the resistance, right? And, and how are they going to form, and how are they going to, um, you know, kind of 
build themselves up. And there's a question about whether uh, Trump is kind of paving the way for a revival of the religious left, right? So, so we're all familiar with the religious right and its I was success just ask you about that. in electoral like, politics, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, how, how do you? I mean, so we, we've put Trump and and some Republicans and politicians into this corner. By the way, did anonymous is anonymous their uh, Twitter account get? That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap! My uh, my my um. I have, I have them in a certain list on my tweet deck and they, uh, they're, they're blowing it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, it's like, whoa. So uh, we, for those of you who don't know, it's like pornography all of a sudden being posted by anonymous, um, on their, one of their main Twitter accounts. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so <laughs> putting that aside with the response that, that we see people like Sean Hannity, giving to all right. of this saying, you know, let's make Russia great again, you know, Mara and, and let's, uh, you know, of course, or, I don't know, a lot of the sort of the quote Trump bots, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, you're, you're a fool if you think that having bad relations with Russia is a good thing and Trump's going to help everything out because, um, you know, we're, we're finally going to be friends with Russia again. So we we have that perspective, and then we have people like us in the middle who are kind of like, "What's going on? What do we do?" <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to feel. And then, do you, do you think that there's kind of a not a resistance, but uh, you know, a rebel alliance on on the left that that is out there that is kind of I don't know organizing or or, or getting ready to. Um, I don't know, speak out in a, in a more kind of broader voice, kind of like what we saw with the, the, the creation of the Tea Party that, that really transformed the Republican Party. Do you think there's kind of that leftist, you know, kind of a Tea Party-esque movement that's going to transform the Democratic Party? Um, so there could be. Um, I don't know that we're actually seeing it. Um but okay so there are a couple things there are some groups that are trying to make this happen okay so like there's this group indivisible that's trying to make this happen and and they're really uh focused on you know what you can do locally there's another group react re and it's like colon act um that's focusing on that and they're trying to kind of build up the resistance that way um and you know obama has even said uh basically the left needs a they need to essentially copy the Tea Party's um, thread or their um, their methodology. Um, the problem is, and, and the religious left is is part of this. And you, and, you know, I I obviously uh, follow a lot of people on the religious left. Uh, there are a number of leaders of the religious left that are pushing a lot of this um, as well, and that are very outspoken about their resistance. The problem continues to be that uh, they are not as homogenous as the religious right is. And this is, I think, continues to be a problem for moderates and liberals, uh, right? Their love of nuance, um, their, you know, convictions that everybody has a place at the table, uh, or, you know, mostly, it depends on who you ask, they're often... Everybody has a place at the table except for a certain group of people. But um, they it's a lot harder to bring them together uh, and to get them to agree on certain things, right? 
we want to say, well, you know, in this situation, we can talk about this and that situation. And we're not going to tell anybody else how they should think or how they should vote or how they should believe. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, that can change. We've seen it change. Uh, we've seen the left be uh, very different in this country's past, um, much more uh, homogenized, much more, much more kind of unified on message, um, you know, against the Vietnam War, uh, civil rights and things like that. So we could see it again. We very well could. And, and I think if we do, I think that the religious left is going to play a role in that. But... At least currently, I've not seen um, enough traction uh, for me to believe that it's going to be significant. Now, I I think that that may change uh, once Trump is inaugurated, and uh, particularly if he begins to enact certain policies. We're you know we're seeing some of this already, kind of around the Affordable Care Act repeal. Um, you know, the they passed the budget resolution uh, in the middle of the night, right shortly after one a.m. Uh, Thursday morning to kind of pave the way for the repeal of uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And and so I, I'm seeing a lot of uh, religious left leaders uh, speak out against this very uh, clearly and forcefully. Um, but it, you know, it may take something like uh, enact, actually enacting a, a ban on Muslims entering the country. Um, or, you know, what is also not out of the question, in my opinion, or at least I've I have I don't have faith that it will never happen under a uh, Trump presidency. Um, if we start to see something like Muslim internment camps, um, then yes, I think the religious left coalesces around that. Uh, but at least currently, as I read the religious left right now, it is it's too um, diffuse, uh, and th- and they've not yet come together on you know one or two clear messages. Uh, and, and, you know, frankly, this is also, I think, part of the problem that the Democratic Party is having itself um, is that it's it's not clear about what its message is. And there are pros and cons with that. I mean, sociologically, right, we know that conservative groups tend to grow faster because they have clearer boundaries. Right. I mean, this is obviously something I spend a lot of time talking about classification and boundaries and things like that um, and groups that are less willing to implement those boundaries. Uh, even if you agree with them philosophically, et cetera, um, it's harder to grow those groups and it's harder for those groups to be forces of change. Oh. Yeah, I had myself on mute. I'm sorry. Um, I guess, I guess to me, it comes back to the question is, you know, do or do now do political parties see themselves as for forces of change or, or are they there to you know enact their own agenda which of course is change but they wouldn't say that yes yeah, anonymous they get hacked or if there's kind of this this odd I don't know. I drive to protect the status quo, make well, America I, great again. Yeah, I don't, so I would I would say there's a drive to protect the status quo among both on but in both parties. Uh, I wouldn't say that drive is that odd. Um, and and that may well be, you know, if the Democrats are going to replicate what the Tea Party did, which I'm not convinced yet that they can, um, it's going to 
it's going to take <laughs> completely giving up on the status quo, right? Which is really hard, right? This, right, So you go back to, we we're talking about um, Joe Biden earlier, right? And one of the things I really respect about him is that he believes in the system. And, and this is, you know, this is kind of classic liberalism that you believe that government can be a force for good. And I 100% believe that. I don't think it's always great by any means, but I do believe that it can be a force for good. I think this is what we see when we have, um, you know, people that have healthcare that didn't have it before. This is what we see with our social safety nets, right? This, this is the common. This is the way we come together for the common good of our uh, fellow citizens, right? Of our brothers and sisters. Um, and so, it's hard to have that belief in in the system and the ability of the system to enact. Uh, positive to affect positive change in the lives of a significant number of people in this country. And then to also think now we need to upend significant parts of the system so that we can bring about even better change. Uh, I, so I can understand how it's hard to get from one point to the other point. Okay. Do you think that's going to be led by political parties or do you think something else like churches or social groups or something like anonymous or WikiLeaks? I think it needs to. um, Because I I don't see with the money involved, I don't see things like like political parties. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think it I know I don't think it will happen uh, through the structure of political parties. Right in the past, in this country, what the left had was labor unions, but they're you know they've been mostly decimated across the country. Um, yeah, got it. And and you look at things like you know the, the last demographic voting patterns where Trump swept the Rust Belt, you right. know, and that that's the union stronghold. But I, I but I think this is a role that the religious left, you know, churches, uh, you know, mosques, synagogues. Um, I think this is a, this is a role the religious left can play. And sort of a kind of coalescing um, role there. It's it will be more difficult than it was on the religious right for a number of reasons, um, but I don't think it's impossible. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But but uh, you know, I mean, so we're seeing some of this, right? Uh, William Barber, uh, you know, uh, part of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, the head of the North Carolina uh, NAACP. I've had the fantastic. A sermon at the DNC this year that brought the house down. Um, so we are seeing this some. We are seeing leftists, you know, not leftists, but you know what I mean. There are religious left leaders uh, that are, you know, standing up. It's essentially in the vein of Martin Luther King Jr., um, who are putting a very clearly moral message uh, on, you know, moral uh, aspect to their message. And that's fully what they believe, but. It's something like that. That that's the type of role that re, that the religious left, I think, can play in a way that um, brings people of different denominations and different religions on the left together. But they can also bring together um, the significant portion right, of the electorate called the nuns, which are also a rather diffuse group. But a significant portion of people that identify as not having any religious affiliation still have. Some religious views, some religious beliefs. You know, a significant portion of them still believe that God exists. They, you know, so they still have these uh, these poles in a certain extent to uh, religious messages. Um, so we could see that happen. I, I definitely think that's a role the religious left could play. Um, we're not quite there yet. 
Well, I mean, we keep talking about this, and unlike, I guess, the, the Tea Party or the right, like, I don't ever see the left as it is, as we call it, like, coalescing and being able to affect any change. Like, I just, especially the religious left. Um, I mean, you look at the Baptist <laughs> world. We, we can't get ourselves together to have a conference. Um, you know, so, so I don't know. I'm, I'm really doubtful uh, on that front. Like, I, I think we've entered into a new era where, yes, there will be pockets of resistance to that type of political climate, you know, stuff, but I don't think it's ever going to be kind of a, a quote mainstream voice. You know, we thought, okay, well, we'll clearly, um, you know, the, the shooting in Baltimore is going to be something or clearly like this event was going to happen or, or, you know, the, the Charleston nine, like these, these huge cultural events that I think previously might've ignited that type of, I mean, you, you invoked MLK. Right. You know, well, so, you know, but the, you know, one of the, I mean, there's a huge thing that we've not mentioned here yet, uh, or a couple things, but one of the main things we've not mentioned is black lives matter. Right. Which, right. um, definitely has a, a a strong aspect of religiosity to it, uh, to a number of the leaders uh, and things like that. But is one of the things that... Uh, I mean, all lives uh, matter, man. All lives matter. One of the things that I think is keeping Black Lives Matter from affecting some of these changes is because the, the belief is, the view of many, and, and it's not wrong, is that we've never been a part of this system, so we can't work through the system. But what that does mean is it means that it's a lot harder to affect systemic change, which needs to be affected. But those are the decisions that you know various people in the movement have made. Um, and so I think that we have seen some of these things kind of, you know pop up after Ferguson with Black Lives Matter. We've seen the fight for fifteen pop up. Um, these you know movements. Yeah, Ferguson. But they, that's right. True. But they are not. Um, they have not been maybe tied to the policy front. And this is you know what I was. Um, I uh, was tweeting about it earlier today, uh, but there's this great piece in the LA Review of Books um, that uh, David, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, Levitus or Levitus, I think it's Levitus, but uh, that he wrote in there you know, on the crisis of liberalism. But his point was that liberals are often focused on either the social uh, movements or the political movements and, and usually at the expense of the other. And what you need to do is you need to figure out how to combine those. Um, and, and and I think that that's why you're right, that we all often don't see the left really coalescing powerfully um, together. Yeah, and I, I just don't see that changing you know, as we go forward into this brave new world. Um, you know, there, there's the kind of the mainstream left with like the Rachel Maddow, Al Sharpton, MSNBC type voice. And then there's like the far, you know, further left with little green footballs and, and, um, you know, daily cost group. Um, but it feels to me like we don't have that same, um, set up in our culture that, that we had that, that sort of gave the, the far right, the ability to, to become what it became because, you have Black Lives Matter and you have the Rachel Maddow fanboys and girls, but, and others, I'm not trying to be normative, um, but the, <laughs> what's the joke? Did you laugh? Um, I'm proud of myself. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I just think we're past that point of, of something like that being able to, to pop up, especially in the age of Trump where the messaging is more important than the message. And I think, um, you know, I think Obama was the last kind of mainstream president that we're going to have for a while, right or left or center. I don't want to be normative. Um, I, I think, you know, we're, we're moving into something else. And, and the same thing with with churches even, you know, a show about religion. I think, you know, we're seeing kind of a shift in how we look at institutions and institutions are not necessarily there to be trusted and given money to. It's more skepticism and what have you done for, for me lately type of a feel to it. Um, and that is where insti- religious institutions on the left can begin to change that, right? Because if you think about, or I mean, we do, I mean, you know, there is a kind of a fundamental distrust of institutions in our society right now. And institutions writ large are experiencing this. Um, but you saw like ACLU after the, uh, after the election had um, more donations than it's ever had in its history, right? By number and by amount, I think. Um, so you have you have that right. A lot of people are like, I don't know what to do, but I can give some money. Okay, that's great. But but I think that religious left institutions, uh, a significant portion of um, what I what I have seen and heard, and, and you know this may be anecdotal, but of distrust of say like the institutional church, for instance, uh, has come at the hand not of liberal churches, but of conservative churches, and so. And there are a whole host of reasons for that um, probably has to do with how my own background and how I grew up and the people that I happen to know because they made similar journeys as I've made. I understand all that. Um, but it could be right that if religious organizations on the left become comfortable with actually speaking out and actually saying, these are our convictions. We're not going to apologize for it. We're not going to tiptoe around it. We're not going to worry about making everybody else happy. We're going to say, this is wholeheartedly what we believe. And these are things on which we will not compromise. Um, I think people will be drawn to that. Right. And and so I I think that's a role that religious left institutions could play. Um, Some of them are, a, a lot of them seem, uh, less willing to do that. And, you know, it comes back to the age old question of job security. Right. Yeah, exactly. And we've talked about that before. And with- that's, just, you know, and, and we've talked about that a lot with pastors going into churches and not um, saying things they know to be true, right? Reverting back into old things because they're worried about losing their jobs. And that only reinforces um, certain messages, right? That only reinforces the attitude of certain congregations. And so I think that you know, congregations are to blame when they treat pastors that way, when they hear something new and then fire the pastor because it's not the same thing they've always heard their whole lives. Uh, I think they're to blame for that. And then I think pastors are to blame for uh, giving into those things, right? So I think it's uh, both and there, but you need congregations to step up and you need their leaders to step up and say, no, we're going to be clear about this. We're going to be, you know, we're not we're not going to get involved in electoral politics, but you don't have to. There are a thousand issues you can get involved in that don't involve yeah. electoral politics, but that still allow you to have a clear message about your convictions and still be able to sleep well at night. Okay, so last question. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to frame that, but do you think that, I don't know, 20, 30 years from now, 
American Christianity, what does it look like from that point of view? I mean, not theologically, I guess theologically as well, but, you know, in terms of, of political action, you know, are, are we going to get back to kind of this MLK sort of, um, I don't know, social gospel, sort of uh, uh, the church can be a force for good. And from the pulpit, you'll hear the word of God sort of telling you to act in society now because the fierce urgency of now, letter from a Birmingham jail, that kind of stuff. Right. Or are we going to continue down the path of kind of the mainstream, large evangelical, you know, don't worry about here, you're an alien, your home's in heaven, and uh, whatever happens here happens, so make all the money you can with all the time you can and be the biggest jerk you can to everyone you can. American gospel. Bastardization of John right. Wesley. Um, you know, to a large degree, I think I, I think it depends on um, leaders in the religious left and not just church leaders, but denominational leaders. Um, we see some denominations clearly becoming more okay you know, stepping out and making statements. Um, but you know, people have to decide if that's what they, if they want it to be more social gospel and less the other, um, you know, less prosperity gospel and that kind of stuff, less uh, what we got with the religious right. They have to simultaneously decide, um, we need to do, we need to speak out on this. We need to do what we think is right. And, um, Accept the consequences that may come, even if they are unjust, right? Um, and simultaneously continue to fight for the separation of church and state. And so that means you have to fight for the role of uh, the social gospel or something like that, or you know the moral Mondays, those types of moral movements. You have to fight for for the place and the role of things like that in civic society, while simultaneously fighting to keep religion out of the government. Uh, which is a, a fine line to walk. I think it's completely possible. Um, but I think only then do you see something like the social gospel kind of uh, come back to the fore, even if people aren't using that terminology, right? Um, this is prime time for the religious left to step up. Um, I think people are largely disenfranchised, particularly post-Trump. And, you know, 80% or 82% of evangelicals voting for Trump, the religious right and evangelicalism in particular um, have for large swaths of the country lost a, even more um, credibility than they had before. Um, and this is the time to do it. And some are trying. We'll see if they can get others to come behind them. So I, the answer is I don't know, but I, I do largely think it depends on the decisions that a lot of people on the religious left make now in the next couple of years. Yeah. So you keep saying the religious left. I'm going to say a religious left because there is no yeah. religious left. No, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm still in the various that. religious lefts. <laughs> right. Don't want to be normative. Um, but yeah, you know, whatever that looks like. And I don't think we've seen that rise up yet. And I thought Ferguson was going to do it. I thought the Charleston Nine was going to do it. I thought the election was going to do it. Um, not that I'll necessarily want to see the rise of a you know something like that, but you know it's it's interesting to me that that hasn't been able to formulate itself. Well, I mean, you know, what I wrote last week was that you know the the problem that we have um, 
in you know America's religion problem is that the default understanding of religion is largely conservative and white. And I think the, both of those things need to change. Our default understanding of religion needs to not be conservative, not saying that it needs to be liberal, but it needs to not be always kind of conservative or evangelical. And it needs to not be white um, because we are increasingly um, a, a less white nation. And um, there are a number of people's voices that we're simply not listening to. Uh, and, you know, I think that also has to change. And, you know, we're seeing that with Reverend Barber and some other people. Um, but that also has to change, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, that's the thing. Like, American religion needs to stop playing, uh, polit- you know, I guess, political identity politics and, and start saying, here's what we stand for, you know. And, and that's not necessarily right or left or center or whatever. Um, and what does that even mean anymore? You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna let sixty year old white guys define what right, left, center, you know, religious left, religious right. You know, we're not gonna let those people define us. So that, I guess that's my pushback against the whole concept of whatever you know, religious left means, because we're you know we're still playing into that nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies idea that. You know, we can define something like that because it's it's not going to look anything like we we thought it would when it when it finally does happen. Yeah, no, I I, I think you're right, um, but that also makes it it makes it difficult to coalesce, right? So if you if you want a movement that has political power and affects significant change, um. It's hard to do that without, to some degree, being normative. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. I, and that's what I don't think it's it's going to be, quote, the religious left, because right. the religious left is not going to be normative. Right. So then the question is, so then maybe it's not possible, right, for people on the religious left to do something like this. And you finally agree with me after <laughs> 94 shows. <laughs> Da-ding, cut it off. We're done. Yeah, that's uh, it. We're going to hang it up now. As we close out tonight, can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Dramatic piano. Um, Thomas has finally agreed with me, so we're going to end the show. Not just this show, the show forever, since Thomas has agreed with me. It's been fun. It's been a fun 94 episodes. We've had a good run of it. Uh, Israel just bombed Syria, evidently. So that's fun. I mean, I'm, I'm not... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a mess. Yep. Welcome to 2017. <sighs> any any last minute predictions? What what happens in the next month? Give me one thing besides the president being inaugurated, installed. Um. I think we we get something out of the Russia dossier um, is proven. You I think? think? I think so. You think, next you month, really think so? I think so. I, I think. I mean, the, I like, think like it's the, the bad stuff, or, or just like the. He I was don't being know something, involved. but you only need five. You only need five percent of it to be true for it to be seriously damning. Um, I think we get something out of that. There, there are too many people looking into it now. Um, obviously the 
you know, national um, you know, intelligence community uh, leaders thought I was serious enough to brief Obama and Trump on. Um, I, you know, I, I certainly don't think it's all true by any means, but uh, something comes out. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but I think I think something from that comes out. Hmm. That's my prediction in the next month. I see. We 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 hear. Uh, we we see someone in the political system in D.C. major major figure retiring unexpectedly with no with no uh, reason why. Hashtag compromise. Compromat. All right. Thank you, Thomas. All right. Uh, as always, you can follow Sam and I on Twitter. I'm at Thomas Whitley. Sam is at Sam Harrelson. And you can always find more great podcasts at thinking.fm.